This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, severe drought is a time all Metro Vancouver communities be forced to implement water metering. Plus, what we need to provide crop relief as the full force of the drought hits BC farmers. And from longshoremen to actors, we look at the ramifications of automation on BC's workforce. Plus, a look ahead to next week's Surrey policing decision. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Drought conditions here in British Columbia. Now, yesterday, Envi- Emergency Management Minister uh, Bowen Ma provided an overview on the challenges and the impacts of drought conditions uh, in British Columbia. Um, Ms. Ma said the level and extent of drought is incredibly concerning. Now, drought conditions here in BC, of course, are measured from level zero to five with five being the worst. Right now, four out of 34 water basins in BC are level five, while 18 basins are at level 14, where impacts are likely. BC United agriculture critic and South Delta farmer Ian Payton will join us today at 4.30 to uh, discuss the massive impact the drought is already having on farmers, not only their animals, but also their crops as well. We'll talk uh, to him at uh, 4.30. But first, let's talk about water and Metro Vancouver. Now, yesterday, Vancouver's son, a column Daphne Brahman was on the show to talk about Metro Vancouver's water challenges and the fact that we're not paying enough attention to our water needs and the incredible growth in our region. We're expecting another million people to move to Vancouver by 2050. Joining me now to talk about the reality check uh, when it comes to Metro Vancouver's water needs uh, today into the future is Richmond Mayor and Chair of the Metro Vancouver Water Committee, Malcolm Brody. Malcolm, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's uh, my pleasure there, Jazz. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. Uh, walk me through where we are as you're part of the, the Water Committee here for Metro Vancouver. Walk me through what the situation is like for someone like yourself who has to make decisions that impact the region along with the committee. Uh, is the situation dire or is it concerning? How would you describe the situation in regards to just the broader issue of water in in the Metro Vancouver area? We've had uh, water restrictions recommended by Metro Vancouver for many years. Uh, It's up to the cities to adopt them each and every year, but we do get cooperation right around the region. The situation with water is we have three wonderful reservoirs on the North Shore, the Capilano, the Seymour, and the Coquitlam uh, lakes, and they provide an ample support, uh, supply of really, really good water. But we are uh, being affected by the increased heat every year, it, you know, with climate change and one thing and another. And also we're challenged by growth. We're going through a growth spurt, which we have been through for a number of years, and we expect it to last many more years as well. So water supply and uh, water quality uh, those are always top of mind uh, for Metro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Now, you talked about a growth spurt. We're expecting another million people here by 2050. Uh, and conservation right. methods have 
to a certain degree, uh, provided uh, some help. Uh, I believe the, that um, there has been significant reduction in the early years when when the region first started water conservation back in the 1990s, but the returns are smaller and smaller. Um, when do you think we can increase future supply or at least supply storage of water? And how do we go about doing that? Any, any sense of what the cost would be? Because inevitably, one would assume with the growth that we're seeing and continued growth, well to 2050, how do we deal with this issue in a more meaningful way and in regards to the dollars that may be required? Yeah. Uh, Most of the year, for much of the year, we have no problem. We get plenty of rainfall. Last year was particularly rainy. Uh, So the reservoirs are really topped up very nicely uh, by the beginning of the spring. And also the, the rainfall is augmented by the snowpack which melts and then comes down through the rivers and streams down into those reservoirs. So we start the springtime with really a good supply, Mm -hmm. but then we get into the hot weather. And so that's where conservation needs to come in. Uh, We're now using uh, stage one water restrictions, and that means for lawn watering, you can only water your lawn basically one day a week, uh, and then there's restrictions on the shrubs and and whatever. Now, you talk about growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can tell you that the water district at Metro Vancouver is very much immersed in our future needs and are taking steps to increase dramatically the supply of water over the next number of decades. So the site... You know, the sites you've set, you know, what's happening by 2050 is mirrored by the efforts of uh, all the people in the water department at Metro Vancouver. They are also looking at that. Uh, They have a number of of strategies uh, to uh, increase the supplies so that no matter what happens, uh, the supply will be plentiful and we can count on it uh, in the decades to come. You also asked about the cost. Uh, anything when you're talking about water uh, you know the water comes from the sky and down the streams free but then you have to process it and you have to have the infrastructure to get it to the farthest regions part of the region Mm -hmm. so you can imagine what is necessary to go from north shore all the way out to langley or to maple ridge or whatever Um, so i don't have a dollar figure to give you but i can tell you that the the infrastructure is huge and very, very costly. Uh, there was a, an article earlier, I think in April, that Daphne Broman from the Vancouver Sunday, and she talked about a, a $2.5 billion capital plan from 2022 to 2026. Would that be a rough uh, estimate in regards to the cost? And, and that was for the capital plan, as I say, from 2022 to 2026, so $2.5 that roughly close to, at this point, what the cost would be estimated? Uh, Jazz, I don't have the the numbers at my fingertips. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do know that the numbers are very, very large. Now, to their credit, mm-hmm. uh, when we had a new CEO, CAO, uh, Jerry Dubravolny at Metro Vancouver, he oversaw a process where we looked at the capital spending over the next number of years, and with better timing and more predictability, we've been able to reduce 
some of the spending. But in the end, uh, there's going to be large dollars spent on the water supply just to make sure that we have a good, adequate supply of uh, world-class drinking water here in the region. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, hammer this home, but I, I'm just curious. Uh, the cost of this is significant. Will there be need? Will there be a need for more taxation, or do you, can this be done within the present? Uh, financing within Metro Metro Vancouver because it is quite significant. Two and a half billion dollars in dollars of today can easily go up quite significantly with these massive infrastructure projects. Yeah. Will, will you require help from senior levels of government to sort of meet the needs of water needs moving forward for the region? Well, first of all, your last question: Do we need the senior levels of government? The the answer is definitely yes because the projects are so large, but. When you, act, when you talk about taxation, I'm not trying to split hairs here, but yeah. relatively little of what Metro Vancouver done is based on direct taxation, property taxation. Uh, the water revenue is generated by the cities purchasing water from the water district. So, yes, the taxpayers are paying for it, but it's not through a direct taxation. Um, That brings me to uh, one of the strategies that I feel passionately about, Mm -hmm. but has not been universally uh, accepted, is the fact that we should have universal water metering. Uh, In my city of Richmond, all the single-family dwellings have water meters, um, and the businesses, for the most part, have water meters. Uh, the multifamily complexes are lagging behind that, but they're picking up as well. And so we've been able to demonstrate that with the use of water metering, our population has grown, grown, I'll use specific numbers. We've been working on the water metering project since about 2005 or so. And since that time, our population has grown by over 25%. And the usage of water has decreased uh, in excess of 15%. So you can see that notwithstanding growth, we're getting a reduction, and I attribute most of that to the water metering program. But individual cities have to do that, Jazz. It's not something that can be mandated by Metro Vancouver or the water district. So it does require some, uh, uh, you know, uh, some backbone from elected officials in, in some municipalities They look every individual family or household at least should be paying based on what they what they are are consuming and based on their consumption uh, consumption patterns um, based on what you just said there uh, you know i was looking at uh, some imagery from uh, asia in regards to water and even when my time living in india i was always um, you know i have images seared to my mind of water trucks coming and filling up the water tanks in each individual home and water it's a huge challenge in, in many parts of Asia and Africa. And we take it for granted here to a certain degree. Asking people to take a shorter shower is, uh, you know, sometimes people take it the wrong way. They're not happy with elected officials saying that. Or, you know, shutting the water off when you're brushing your teeth. Do you think, fundamentally, as, uh, you know, for those of us living in a developed nation, 
uh, with plenty of fresh water, particularly here in Canada, that there is still that notion that we got lots of water here. I'm not changing my consumption patterns, even though elected officials are asking me, even though there's climate change, even though that we see drought conditions here in British Columbia, that part of the fight still is this assumption that it's our God-given right to spend, to use as much water as we need. And that includes my green lawn in the middle of August. If that means, if that means not paying attention to the rules, I'll do that. I think you've put your finger on a big part of the public challenge. Uh, people think, well, if I take a long shower or whatever, uh, that w- what difference really does that make? I mean, am I really helping the environment by doing that? But when you multiply that by a few hundred thousand or million times, it does make a difference. So I can tell you from my experience here in the city of Richmond, when we brought in the water meters, we found all kinds of uh, homes that had leaks that were going undetected. Uh, that and and that led to a lot of the uh, uh, you know the statistics that showed us that our water use was declining. And I think, from a common sense point of view, uh, again, part of what you've said is that it is it is really important that um, to me that if you want to take if you want to use an excess amount of water you need to pay for it because that the cities buy the water from the water district at metro vancouver and so that's the way that you need to pay for it uh, if you use a lot you pay a lot and if you use only a little you pay relatively little uh, and i think that that's the way it should be Malcolm, uh, it's a huge issue, and uh, I think we're all just trying to wrap our heads around it provincially and, of course, here in Metro Vancouver. Really appreciate your time and look forward to chatting with you soon. Thanks so much. Uh, Thank you, Jazz. Anytime. What uh, has uh, occurred this weekend when it comes to news? Think uh, the uh, port deal. We have uh, conversations about the drought. Uh, We have a new poll out when it comes to BC politics. And of course, looking forward to next week, a potential decision when it comes to the Surrey policing issue. I assume a final decision, although I'm not sure. Joining me now to talk about all these issues is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Uh, Good afternoon, Keith. Great to be here, Jazz. Yeah, so let's start with uh, news that occurred this week, uh, specifically the 13-day port strike came to an end. Now, it's a tentative agreement. It still has to be ratified. Uh, But essentially, it looks like uh, the 7,400 workers will be uh, back to work, although there's, uh, you know, well over 60,000 containers, I think, that are waiting to be unloaded. Lots to talk about there. Uh, first and foremost, um, w- were we very close to having these workers legislated back? Oh, I think we're very close. In fact, if they hadn't accepted the mediators recommended in terms of settlement, I think the government would have no force but to recall Parliament, which they really did not want to do for a number of reasons. But... Um, Thankfully, both sides actually like what they saw from the media, or at least enough to recommend ratification to their members. We don't have the details. All we know is it's a four-year deal. I suspect it's going to contain a fairly good wage increase. Uh, longshore workers in the United States, Western United States, got 32% over six years, a very long contract. And the employer was looking for certainty here in terms of length, and they got it with a four-year deal. And I think, just again, 
instinct tells me the trade-off here was uh, give the employer a longer deal and give the employees a, a good uh, pay hike. And then, of course, there's the issues of automation and jurisdiction of when it comes to performing maintenance, which was a key issue in this dispute. And again, I, I assume there was enough there for both sides to, to like on those issues to say yes to it. A deal is a deal, and I hope it works out for both sides. Uh, but the broader question about automation, I, I don't think the Longshoremen's Union, they may be, be able to delay some of it, but it is inevitable, is it not? I mean, you can't fight technology. Well, particularly with new facilities. So the Roberts Bank it's expansion, I think it's inevitable you're going to see uh, a highly automated system there. Some of the older facilities, parts of the Port of Vancouver, maybe a slower pace with automation. Uh, the union is worried there could be a faster pace, which would basically be displacing jobs. But I think it's a, you know, technological change comes with some pain sometimes. I mean, I was in the newspaper industry. We had a lot there, and a lot of people's uh, livelihoods were adversely affected as technology changed. And it seems to be inevitable in a lot of industries. I don't think uh, the ports are going to be immune from that type of thing going forward. No, as I've said, uh, you don't see much sympathy out there for bank tellers as we do our internet banking or travel agents uh, when we book our own hotels and and flights and everything else, and it's an ongoing issue, and uh, one that uh, I'm sure uh, it is one of the key issues when it comes to uh, even this actor strike. Less so with automation, but more so, so with artificial intelligence. But it's all the broader issue of technology. Well, let's touch on the other issue. Bowen Ma was uh, uh, speaking yesterday. She's our emergency management minister. Uh, she talked broadly that uh, you know a significant amount of water basins in BC are either at level four or at level five. We're going to have uh, Ian Payton from. Uh, uh, the BC United uh, Party, he's the, he's the agriculture critic joining us at 4.30, talk about the impact on crops and on animals um, in regards to this drought. Uh, can we expect um, you know, some sort of measures brought in province-wide, uh, even more so than, than already have in regards to this drought? Oh, I think so. Um, Ian's calling for certain measures uh, when it comes to cattle. I think we're now headed to a, a really bad month or so. The briefing from Bowen Ma yesterday was quite alarming. We've got, as you mentioned, two-thirds of our water basins are now very high levels. So one to, we have a one-to-five system, five being the worst, uh, four are at level five, 18 at level four, as you say. This is an unprecedented situation. And just as we saw in the unprecedented pandemic, we saw things occur that we never uh, had envisioned before, didn't think possible before. So I think you're, we are going to see some, some. I don't know what they are, but I do think you're going to see some some measures we've not seen before when it comes to dealing not only with drought, but wildfires, the combination of the two, uh, the weather change, the climate change is real, and that calls for measures that were uh, really not on the table before, and I think we're going to see that unfold over the summer. Yeah, Malcolm Brody was on the show uh, at 3 o'clock, and he's already talking about, he was talking about water metering, which Richmond uh, is water metering, many other municipalities are on in Metro Vancouver, but uh, there's a lot of uh, suburbs that aren't. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, they were able to find leaks in, in locations which they didn't, weren't aware of. Uh, it, it allows for better usage of water and also allows the consumer to realize, you know, here's the impacts of my consumption patterns and I perhaps may need to alter them. Uh, and so he's still pushing for broader water metering. When you, when you look at even climate change, I mean, we've had uh, conversations on this show about, you know, should landlords be responsible for providing cooling systems uh, just as they are responsible for heating when they uh, rent out their uh, properties. This is a, it's amazing to me, even in the last year, maybe 18 months, how much our conversation uh, in regards to climate change, in regards to droughts, it is, it's been a complete 180 degree turn in my mind well, in regards to that conversation. 
Yeah, I mean, it colors everything. I mean, two years ago, who would have ever thought the BC government was going to hand out 8,000 air conditioners? Um, you know, this is this is the type of thing now that was never imagined before because, you know, we never had a heat dome um, before. These atmospheric rivers, I mean, some of these new terms we never really dealt with before. It's now, you know, even the, the saying the new reality is kind of almost trite these days because the reality is changing all the time. Um, we didn't have this drought level uh, when we had the heat dome. Now we're having the, the drought levels that we haven't seen before. So this is, you know, the new normal. Again, it sounds kind of hackneyed, but it's going to be used increasingly in all sorts of situations. And, you know, in B.C., we, we take, I think, our water for granted because historically we, we many of us live so close to fr- abundance of supply of fresh water. But those days are coming to an end as our drought condition uh, sustains itself and worsens. And you look at what's going, down, going on in California the last few years where they went from severe drought to severe flooding. Uh, the The sort of the pendulum swinging between extreme weather is seems to be a regular thing now. So as I say, no one envisioned the government paying for so many air conditioners a while ago, but that is part of the new thing. And, and you know, requiring landlords to be more responsible for cooling areas, that's probably going to be a new thing going forward as well. And there's other measures, again, that haven't been thought of. I think increasingly we're going to be, have to look at other jurisdictions that have de- been dealing with extreme weather more than we have. You look at down in the southwest, uh, Arizona and California, when it comes to heat, we may have to be examining what they're doing uh, to, when it comes to dealing with severe drought. As the Colorado River down there continues to drop, uh, and the reservoirs drop. Uh, mm-hmm. The supply of water is becoming a crisis in southwest um, United States, and we're not immune from that type of thing. No. I think governments are sort of mindful of that. No, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about uh, one other other issue before we go to break here, which uh, there's a new Leger poll, uh, and I think you're working on that for tonight's newscast. Uh, tell me what it says in regards to the NDP and the BC United. Well, it's a, this is the latest poll in a series of polls that have found similar findings and those by-election results recently that show that the name BC United has not latched on with the public. So it, when it comes to decided votes here, uh, the NDP's at 44%. The, the Angus Reid had them at 47% just a week before. 27% for BC United. And this is alarming for BC United. 16% for the Conservatives and just 11% for the Greens. So 16% for the Conservatives and just 27% for the BC United. That's a split. That's the proverbial split on the center-right part of the spectrum. This is music to the NDP's ears. I ran the numbers from the last election. If this type of a level were to continue through an election campaign in terms of voting numbers, the NDP would win more than 60 seats, and the BC United would be lucky to break 20, and the Conservatives can considerably win a couple themselves. So this is good news for the NDP. You know, incumbent governments continue to fare well with voters, uh, either in polls or when it actually comes to voting, as we saw with the federal Liberals in the, in the by-elections. Uh, they actually perform better than the Conservatives did, even though each won two seats. Uh, so the electorate right now is not in a punishing mood to elected governments, and maybe that's a hangover from the pandemic when governments were seen in a different light. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll change, but I think the BC United has a serious marketing problem at its hands, and, and they don't have a lot of time to fix it. The next election is October 19, 2024, unless Mr. Eby decides to go earlier, and he probably is tempted when he sees numbers like this. I think he's going to wait, but boy, I think the pressure will build on Mr. Eby if this number, if BC United continues to have a problem 
being recognized by the voters out there, uh, his, his trigger figure might get a little itchy. I'm pulling the plug. And I find this surprising uh, for one reason more than anything is we're sending cancer patients to Bellingham. We've got challenges when it comes to our emergency uh, rooms shutting down in smaller communities. There's still the issue of affordability and housing. There's still issues of mental health and addiction, a broader conversation about decriminalization to the point where municipalities say uh, they want to ban the use of drugs in parks. There's a myriad of issues that this government is dealing with and some would say wearing, uh, yet there seems to be very little impact on their favorability yep. uh, when it comes to, you know, the group that people would vote for. So I had a call out last week, uh, Mike Glacier pointed out the Angus Reid poll, uh, again, decided the polls, three uh, critical issues out there, health care, housing, and affordability. The NDP government scores about an 80% disapproval rating on those three issues that are seen as the most important issues to British Columbians. Yet, when it comes to asking people how they would vote, almost half say they'll vote for the, exist- the sitting government and not for the opposition. And in fact, when it comes to the opposition, they're all over the map. So it's you know, a bit of a head-scratcher. I agree. There's a lot of controversies uh, out there, get a lot of media coverage, uh, but the opposition doesn't seem to be making ground here. And I think I wonder if the public now doesn't think governments can fix some of these really entrenched problems. Housing has been a problem for years. It was a problem on the B.C. Liberal Watch. It's a problem on the NDP Watch. And I think a lot of voters may think, you know what, neither of you guys has the key to the solution to this vexing problem. And that may go to other issues such as health care and inflation and affordability. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We've been talking about the week that was from the port deal to uh, droughts and, of course, a new political poll out uh, that came out today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about next week, Keith. And, of course, uh, I keep saying the final decision on Surrey policing, but something something tells me that it may not be final. It may be just the latest decision. But we are expecting an announcement from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth on this issue of Surrey policing and whether or not uh, Surrey's desire to keep the RCMP, um, uh, whether they'll be able to do so or whether or not um, the minister will say, no, uh, continue with SPS. Yeah, so we're expecting that the buzz around the legislature is Wednesday um, here in Victoria. Um, and, and the expectation is it's going to go to the SPS way based on a number of things. David Eby, the Premier yesterday, um, or the day before at the Premier's conference, uh, was asked about the RCMP and his response. And you have to remember, David Eby, we've come to learn, chooses his words very carefully. There's no such thing as a flippant response from him. Mm -hmm. And he deliberately, uh, basically, um, was more negative towards the NDP situation than positive. He said the current situation, when it comes to staffing of the RCMP, is, quote, unsustainable. So... You take that and you put that into the the equation here. So if he thinks it's unsustainable, and keep in mind, he has signed a non-disclosure agreement, and mm-hmm. which means he's read the Surrey internal report that was given to those in government who will sign that. So he has the knowledge of what's in that report. And he doesn't reference that report, but he says the RCMP staffing levels are unsustainable. Uh, having said that, I don't see how you square that with a decision to go back to the RCMP in Surrey. It just doesn't make any sense. And the more conversations I have with Mike Farmer and other senior members of this government, the more convinced I am they are not going back to the RCMP. They are going with SPS. Now, having said that, you're right. What happens next? Is this the final chapter? I don't know how it actually is going to work. I don't know if Brenda Locke is going to you know, file a lawsuit or 
seek some sort of legal challenge to this. Um, the reaction from her is going to be decidedly negative if it goes that way. I don't have like I'm not, I haven't been leaked anything or anything like that. It's just based on what David Eby said mm-hmm. and what others are saying in the government. I'd be very surprised if they decided to go back to the RCMP, given all the problems associated with that force. And again, it's interesting. Other premiers spoke up as well in Winnipeg. It was Danielle Smith signaling Alberta's getting away from the RCMP. Heather Stevenson, Stevenson in Manitoba, the premier there, also making similar comments. The premier of, of New Brunswick making similar comments. So when the premiers are asked this and they all come up with negative views of the RCMP, mm-hmm. uh, I just don't see how the government says, well, we're going to go back to the RCMP. I think they're going with SVS. Uh, and I don't necessarily disagree with you. And when I spoke to Brenda Locke um, earlier this week, uh, I did ask her about that, and, and as you may recall, she said to me she won't take no for an answer, which would tell you that, you know, she will probably look for other avenues to challenge it. And, you know, I went further and asked her, you know, you've done everything you promised you'd do. You'd, you would fight for the RCMP, and if that's not the case, it was the good fight. Let's walk away and do your thing and, and continue to manage the city like you're supposed to do. And it uh, seems to me uh, that at this point, um, uh, I, I don't understand why they're fighting it so much. I'm not saying you shouldn't fight if that's that's what she believes. That's what she promised. But somewhere along the way, you've got to say, look, there's other things that I need to be doing for this city and other things for her own legacy. I'm just surprised at how yeah. adamant well, she is. I haven't seen much political acumen coming out of that office, quite frankly. She won with a very low percentage of the vote uh, and a very low turnout. So I don't really think she can argue the, the vast majority of people are behind me on this particular issue. I think most people that I talk to in Surrey or when they phone in on NW, they just want this thing done. You know, just yeah. get, make a decision and move on. I think people are more worried about cost of living, about housing, about street crime, pick an issue, health care, crowded schools. They're not sitting there spending hours and hours arguing between the merits of RCMP and Surrey police. They just want to move on. But Brenda Locke seems determined that this is the hill, you know, in which to make the last stand. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch. That's for sure. Keith, thank you. Have a great weekend. During the first hour, we talked about um, uh, drought conditions and Metro Vancouver's response uh, to drought conditions. And uh, Mayor Malcolm Brody from Richmond, he's part of the Water Committee of the Metro Vancouver Board, uh, talked about water metering uh, that is required. It's all, of course, a broader conversation around summertime and uh, hotter temperatures and temperatures that last a lot longer as well. It's all, of course, in response to climate change. Well, today, uh, Saskatchewan implemented crop insurance changes uh, amid drought conditions. which will move to support both crop and livestock producers. Uh, It's in collaboration with the federal government, of course, uh, in response to ongoing drought conditions, and in the case of Saskatchewan, grasshopper damage impacting crop yields. Now, that's the situation in Saskatchewan, but it's a reminder the impact of climate change. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the impacts of droughts on BC farmers is Ian Payton. He is the uh, agriculture critic for the BC United Party, and I might add he's an MLA for South Delta, and a farmer himself. Ian, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon, Jess. Good afternoon. Uh, Now, I know you are regularly in touch with BC farmers uh, throughout our province. You travel a lot. Uh, What are you hearing from them in regards to what they're seeing in regards to their crops and, of course, uh, their their animals as well? Well, Jess, when it comes to the drought situation we're facing here in BC, it's interesting if I look, first of all, even here in the Fraser Valley in Vancouver Island, when I was a kid growing up in the 60s and, and teenager in the 70s, you know, even on my farm and my dad and my grandfather, nobody had irrigation uh, systems here in the Fraser Valley. It was just kind of unheard of. Mm-hmm. And now 
every farmer pretty much in the Fraser Valley, if you're a dairy farmer, you're growing feed for your cattle, you're growing potatoes, uh, vegetables, any kind, everybody's got an irrigation system now because things have changed and without uh, water and irrigation on your farms, you're, you're pretty much a done deal here on Vancouver Island and uh, in the Fraser Valley. So that takes me to, you know, your next topic of drought in the upper part of uh, British Columbia. I'm getting phone calls every day as the agriculture critic for BC United from uh, ranchers up in uh, Chetwin and Vanderhoof and Quinell and places like that. And, you know, Jazz, I'm telling you, these folks, these are family-owned businesses, ranch families at third, fourth generation. And there's peers, people choking up almost, with tears that they're going to have to sell off a bunch of their livestock, you know, part of their herd because they don't have enough feed to get through this fall and this winter. And I can explain more about that situation in a minute. Yeah. So why don't they, why don't they have feed? So if you're a cattle rancher, you might have, if you're fairly big, you might have 500 cows and calves at foot that were born this spring. So now you've got a thousand head of cattle. And normally they would go out sort of on the mountainsides, in amongst the forest, on crown lands for grazing. And a lot of this crown lands have been burnt off by forest fires. So suddenly the the grazing areas that these uh, beef cattle have had, there's no more grass to eat there. A lot of these ranchers have had to move them back down towards the ranch. Now they're eating the the grass and alfalfa that the farmer was going to bale and put away for winter feed. So now he's really in a bind where uh, the ground is so dry, Mm -hmm. no moisture, that uh, these crops are nothing. So normally a a rancher might be out in his baler and get uh, six or seven round bales to the acre. Right now they're getting like one round bale to the acre because there's just nothing there for grass crops. Uh, so uh, you know, before we and I talked, I talked about the fact that in Saskatchewan they are implementing some crop insurance changes because of these drought conditions. What do we need to be doing here uh, in uh, in British Columbia in the next, well, immediately or in the, or the next couple of months? Well, I read that today, Jazz, with the, in Saskatchewan. If you've got a crop that's doing very poorly, that's a grain crop, what they're saying is the farmer can actually uh, get paid out a better price for what would have been a successful crop, but he can he can harvest that crop and use it as feed for cattle instead of uh, sort of food for human human consumption. Uh, what we need to do in BC, and this frustrates the living heck out of me, mm-hmm. uh, this BC NDP government came up with $228 million in agri-recovery back in February of 2022. And then, Jazz, they threw in an extra $111 million just a few months ago with the surplus money they had in their budget. And I don't know where this $111 million is going to. Well, I sort of know. They, they didn't even know the, the afternoon we asked them where this money is going. So this $111 million should be going directly into the hands of farmers and ranchers that have been so devastated by, by fires and floods and now drought and feed shortages. They've got to get this money quickly into the hands of these folks so they can go out and source some feed for their cattle. So where is the money that I'm just, if, if it was available, where, where is it then? Where's, where's it going? Well, I can tell you, they couldn't even come up with answers. And Jazz, you know what, uh, what uh, you know, budget estimates is, uh, mm-hmm. $30 million to new relationship fund for First Nations for agriculture, $20 million to food security, $20 million to food processing, $20 million to innovation and affordability, uh, $1 million to food hubs. These are, these are just 
we don't, you know, we don't need to worry about things like this. We need to worry about our actual farmers and using this money, not to be worrying about technology and innovation and all these woke ideas for agriculture in BC. Let's get this money into the hands of these farmers that are clinging on by a thread, some of them. I mean, it's a tough business. It's very, very high risk. Mm-hmm. So, look, if, if nothing is done in the next couple of months, what do you foresee? Well, I can tell you right now, Jazz, it, it's it's a sad situation. So what happens is farmers take a look and they, you know, nobody wants to see your own cattle starving. So they're saying, look, I cannot have enough feed to feed uh, 500 head this winter. So I'm going to cut my herd in half. And right now the stories are going around. We've got some big auction barns in British Columbia, including Vanderhoof, that normally this time of year would have 500 head of cattle going through it. On a, on a weekday sale, uh, the can- Vanderhoof auction markets got something like 2,000 to 25 head of cattle lined up to go through there because ranchers are just selling them off uh, to get rid of them, to take their losses and not have uh, those animals to feed through the winter. And, of course, uh, reasonably good cattle prices in the last six months are going to go in the tank with so many cattle hitting the auction yards. Any indication right now from the government that there is anything coming in regards to emergency funding for farmers? Well, you know, we see these announcements all the time, and I've seen this movie several times with the NDP government. They're always saying, well, we're, we're, we're contacting farmers and ranchers, and we're going to help out as best we can, and we should have some agri-recovery money. But, uh, you know, I, I talk to farmer after farmer and rancher, and they've heard nothing from government. They, they don't see anything immediately happening on the horizon for uh, for feed and and what we need is government to be out I, I don't think any of these farmers or ranchers have time to be on the phone trying to locate feed uh, next door in Alberta or Saskatchewan or down in Washington State or Oregon so government officials should be on the phone trying to secure some feed uh, out of uh, I would say eastern Washington. Uh, Ian thank you so much have yourself a wonderful weekend look forward to chatting with you again next week as this uh, story continues to evolve thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks, Jess. Canada's film and television community is bracing for more job uncertainty uh, after Hollywood actors uh, walked off the job. Uh, the Screen Actors Guild uh, uh, and the America Federation of Television and Radio Artists uh, walked off the job at midnight Thursday. Uh, earlier today, Fran Drescher, who is the president of SAG and AFTRA, uh, spoke on the issue of uh, why they walked off the job. Take a listen. What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor by means of when employers make Wall Street and greed their priority and they forget about the essential contributors that make the machine run. We have a problem. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, how they plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. That is uh, Fran Drescher, uh, the president of SAG and AFTRA. Now, uh, what uh, Ms. Drescher has be, was talking about there is the use of generative AI, uh, and it remains one of the major sticking points in negotiations. Also, uh, residuals uh, as well, on top of many other issues. But uh, in many cases, some would argue that this particular strike 
is to a certain degree similar to the port strike that we've seen here uh, in the lower mainland. Uh, a lot of it is in and around AI, but in case of the port, it's automation. Similar technology, but the impact is the same on people working in an industry. And of course, there will be ripple effects on our local industry as well. Joining me now is Mary Kelly, the National Executive Director for the Union of BC Performers. Mary, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much. I'm actually the National Executive Director Yes, uh, for Actra. There you go. Oh, for Actra. Okay. Well, uh, Marie, let me start first and foremost with uh, the number one issue. Is uh, your first of all your thoughts on what has transpired in the U.S.? How much of an impact will this have uh, on the industry here in Canada? Yeah. So I would start by saying, how unfortunate is it uh, when uh, actors have to go to the pavement in order to ensure? that they have fairness in their contract. Uh, We saw approximately 70 days ago in May, the writers were forced out on strike. And so we've been seeing a rippling impact uh, of the writers' strike and now the SAG-AFTRA members' strike. Uh, We usually have in BC anywhere from 20 to 30 productions, uh, and we are uh, at one production right now. So it clearly has had uh, an impact on our production in BC in particular, although it's impacting uh, performers in Canada uh, from coast to coast to coast. Do you think this is going to be a long strike? I don't know. Uh, I certainly hope not. Uh, I hope that uh, the members of SAG-AFTRA are able to show the solidarity that they have with their union, and they're doing that very well that they show the industry that they're serious about making fair gains in their collective agreement and that the industry understands they need to come back to the table and bargain a deal that works for everyone. Uh, How big of a challenge is uh, uh, AI to your industry? AI is a, it's a major issue that we are all contending with. So it is as important as it is in the United States. It's also important here in Canada. We want to ensure that when AI is used, and we're not opposed to using AI in our industry, we, but we want to make sure that care is taken with how it's used, that performers are compensated for its use, and that there is a consent given by performers. So I can just try to bring this to life a bit for Mm -hmm. your listeners and say a performer's business is its image. And so the individual, what the individual says and does on the screen is very, very important to performers to have the ability to then change what a performer does significantly. So that performer is not okay with the image that's being portrayed is not okay Mm -hmm. to take their image duplicate it, change it, utilize it so that they're not being compensated for the work that they've done is also not okay. So in this case, and for our audience, I want to sort of clarify this issue. Uh, essentially, uh, let's say you're a background actor, an extra, sometimes people refer to them. As, you, you know, you can film somebody as, as a background actor, but with technology today, once you have somebody's image, you can use them in different angles, different perspectives, but you can use that image in perpetuity, and some would argue with no consent or compensation, as you're saying. Um, how? I mean, if, if, even if you're able to do that, would you need as many people working in the industry at the end of the day? 
Absolutely not. And that's the issue here is that you're taking away somebody's image. You're deciding what you're going to do with that image and you're not compensating them for them. So not only can they duplicate a background performer, they can take a principal performer and they can make that principal performer do what they want or say what they want. Mm -hmm. And you've seen a number of very famous uh, high-profile stars who have had their image uh, obstructed by AI and so that they're in the public saying things that they would never say. And it's hard to take that back. Once the public sees your image, mm-hmm. they believe it to be you, and it's hard to take that back. Well, I was just looking at uh, uh, something on YouTube with uh, Morgan Freeman and his image and AI. And is it Morgan Freeman? No, it's not. You have to look closely. But you add a couple of years of technology, and boy, it is looking re- even more real. And you can see the impact it can it can it can potentially have. Now, the the other issue is streaming services. We love streaming services for um, their convenience. Uh, it's easy. Uh, but in the past with television and movies, is once uh, uh, they air, there would be residuals you would receive because they could be run in perpetuity for 10 years, 20 years, depending on a, on a hit TV show. Um, but with streaming services, you don't know what their audience numbers are because they don't share. Uh, and once you run something uh, and it's paid for, there generally isn't res- residuals uh, for – uh, actors and background actors. Uh, how much of an impact is that having for writers and for actors now? Oh, it's having a huge impact. And so basically what's happened in very rapid succession over COVID is that the industry and the studios have switched to this new model of streaming. They have determined that they can uh, source revenue for themselves in a different way, and they are making money through their streaming services. On the flip side, the collective agreements that we have are premised on a different business model in which performers actually get a small share of the profits when you are reusing and using the work that we do. And so you're quite right. What's happened is with the flip from the old business model to the new business model, performers are losing out. And I can tell you that the income of performers is premised on two things. One is actually working the day for the shoot, so performing on the day so that you get it into uh, the can for use. And then secondly is what are they doing with that performance? Is it going to be something that is going to be shot and shown worldwide or is it a small market? Is it going to be something like, you know, Seinfeld that is going to go on and on? But performers should have a share in the profits that are made out of their creative, which is a product. Mm -hmm. And the new business model doesn't recognize their contribution like the collective agreement expects them to. And, you know, I just think of my own viewing habits. Uh, You know, 25 years ago when you had a a season of television, it'd be 24 episodes, if not even longer. And today uh, a series can have 10 episodes, eight episodes on these streaming services. So there isn't as much work that is stretched over the year as well. I mean, what we consider a season now is changing too. And I I think people don't realize sometimes, while there may be more quantity of work, as certainly there was in the past, I'm not sure if it would be moving forward with these streaming services because of their finances. But the industry, for me, it seems this strike uh, is that inflection point where this industry has to figure out a, a, a compensation for actors, background actors, writers, everyone that can move you forward over the next 10 years because technology has changed so quickly. 
Absolutely. And I think often when the general public thinks about performers, they think about the individuals that are the stars, that are often seen as the faces of the industry, but they don't recognize that there are hundreds of thousands of workers uh, in the industry, lots and lots of different kinds of performers, there's crew, Uh, There's just so many people that are attached to this industry that make this industry go. And when it comes to performers, the work of performers is very precarious. Many of our members have to have a second job in order to make ends meet. And so they have to do auditions on a regular basis, which in our world is unpaid work. Mm -hmm. You memorize pages and pages of script. You create a character and you deliver a performance in the hopes that you will get work. That happens, uh, you know, regularly throughout the week for a performer for work that's unpaid. And then you hope to land enough gigs throughout the year that will get you through. So this is not about performers who are looking to make oodles of money. Performers want to live and perform in the world in which they have the talent and the expertise and they love but they also want to make sure that the industry that makes money off of their backs appropriately compensates them so that they can actually stay in the industry that they know and that they love. Ms. Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate uh, the conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.